Shalom. This is Reverend John Ferret, and this is the Gospel According to Moses, Lesson 19. And this is a Bible study on the Torah from a, again, unique perspective as we take a look at the view of the Torah from archaeology and history, geography, the customs and culture of ancient Israel, the Jewish roots of our faith, you might say, and even the languages of the ancient Middle East. Now, one goal that I stated for this series is where is Jesus in the Torah? John 5.39, Jesus says, All scripture testifies of me. He says this sometime between 24 to 30 A.D. And to them, the only scripture that they would know is the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures. Matter of fact, there is a amazing scholar. Her name is Lois Tverberg. Her website is ourrabbijesus.com, ourrabbijesus.com. And Lois is a recognized, highly credible scholar of, you might say, the Jewish culture of Jesus' day and how that helps us understand the New Testament, understands the gospel, and so on. She wrote a couple of books, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, and one of her latest, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. And one of the things that she says in her book, and Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, is the only Bible they had in Jesus' day was the Old Testament. And the primary books of the Bible in those days was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Matter of fact, Lois Tverberg is going to be having a seminar online that we can all attend. This will be October 5th through the 9th. The title of her seminar or webinar is How God Used the Torah to Save the World. And that makes sense because that's exactly what those first disciples did. That's how the early church, and I mean right from the get-go, after Jesus ascends to the heaven and they start expanding, they're using the Torah. And with regards to Lois's webinar, I put a link in the description of this session so that you can link to her webpage, Our Rabbi Jesus, and be able to consider the possibility of attending via your computer that webinar that she entitled, How God Used the Torah to Save the World. I highly recommend the book, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. Because again, as a Bible historian, Lois and I, as a Bible historian, look at the simple history. The only Bible that they had was the Torah. Now in Judaism, there were two great rabbis, Akiva, he was alive during the early, early 2nd century A.D. and Maimonides, and he was a great rabbi, Torah scholar in the late 12th century A.D. Both agreed that there was no sacrifice in the Torah that atoned for sin, that atoned for sin that was done on purpose, intentionally. And that's how we understand it. Sin is done intentionally. Torah provides no answer. Now what's fascinating about this is the writer of the book of Hebrews, some say it's Paul, uh, but we still, some say Luke, 
but we do not have a definite answer on the author of the book of Hebrews. But regardless, you go to Hebrews chapter 10, we talk about animal sacrifices, and the writer of the book of Hebrews says that there is no animal sacrifices, no blood of animals that can take away sin. In other words, the sin offering in Leviticus 4, if you read it very carefully in Leviticus 4, it says it's only for unintentional sins, sins by mistake, um, not done on purpose. And that's exactly what the sin offering is for, but not for sin done on purpose, intentionally. In other words, we know exactly what we're doing and we're actually sinning. Paul says something in Acts 13, 38 through 39. He is at the synagogue in southern Turkey, in central southern Turkey, in a city called Antioch of Pisidia. And we pick this story up in Acts 13, and we start in 38, where Paul is saying, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. But see, the thing is, is that Torah says there is no remedy in Torah for intentional sin. Verse 39, And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed, through the law of Moses. The law of Moses is just another way of saying the Torah. Wow. So again, we turn to one of the original goals of this study. Where is Jesus in the Torah? How does Torah testify of Jesus? How does Torah testify of the kingdom and the gospel? So, let's again return to the flood. And let's consider how this testifies of Yeshua and the ultimate true redemption and salvation from all of our sins for Jew and Gentile alike. Ready to study? Let's go. Gospel according to Moses, as we're at our seventh class in the first semester. And one thing I just want to mention to people who may be listening on the audio is um, you can't see that I'm wearing a kippah. Some of you may know it as a yarmulke. Uh, mostly Jewish people do not say that word anymore because that's Yiddish, and Yiddish is kind of a dead language as far as the Jewish people are concerned. So they call it a kippah, okay? And I'm not Jewish, and you're saying, why would John wear a kippah? Well, I know the symbolism of this for Jewish men. And part of that symbolism is when they're wearing their kippah, they're basically saying, we live under the authority and the control of Adonai. And um, we want to live our lives according to his law, according to his word, and to be righteous before him. I love that symbolism, and so for me, I want to wear it because when I'm teaching this material, this is different than other classes that I teach, this is like, I'm in so in awe of not only the things that I'm learning, but the things that I'm able to share with you. And so for me, I just want to make sure I always honor him, and if I do teach my opinion, I'll state it's my opinion. 
and we can argue. But if I'm teaching you historical fact or real cultural fact, I want to make sure that uh, uh, it is true and we can verify it with solid good references. Uh, and the other thing is, is that may it be that it takes you into a deeper walk as a disciple of Adonai Yeshua. Well, let's get started. One of the purposes of the course, again, is to say, where is Jesus in the Torah? Again, John 5.39, those of you that are listening on audio, and you guys at class tonight, John 5.39, Jesus is staying to the chief priests, uh, probably a bunch of Pharisees, and they're in the temple courts, and he said, all scripture testifies of me. And he says that, probably between 24 to 30 A.D. And this is pretty an easy way that you can actually verify that. Well, the only Bible that they had at that time was the Old Testament. The Torah, the prophets, and what you call the writings. Job, Psalms, and so on. So Jesus is saying that in the Torah, it's all about him. Do you remember the two men on the Emmaus Road? With the two men on the Emmaus Road, it says Jesus started taking them through the scriptures. The books of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets and showing them himself. And the two men basically meet with everybody in the upper room that day, and they said, weren't our hearts burning when he took us through the books of Moses and the prophets, teaching us about himself? So again, if that's the case, is Jesus in the flood story? So this week, I didn't meet when I was preparing I, I was going to start someplace else, but I, I had to return to this, okay? So I want to show you something that's really, really curious. Now, last week in Lesson 6, it was pretty clear that the flood doesn't solve anything. Genesis 6-5, before the flood, God says, the intentions of man's heart, men and women's heart, okay, is to evil continually. They have the flood. And what happens with the eight people that are left, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws? God says the same thing, and that's in Genesis 8.21. So in Genesis 6.5, God says that their intention of man's heart is to evil continually, and then he says it in Genesis 8.21. Nothing's solved. Okay? Nothing's changed. So with regards to that, it's the same as before. And one of the things we take a look at is we understand that God has given us free will. And with regards to free will, we know what Adam and Eve did, and a lot of those people in the days of Noah. They had turned against God, and there was evil predominant uh, across the face of the earth. So it's an amazing good gift that God gives us, but fascinatingly enough, it's got a risk, and God knew it. God knew that there was going to be that risk. Now, last week I described to you, we actually talked to the Hebrew, and the Hebrew is the intention of man's heart. It's not the intention. The Hebrew word is yetzer. Yetzer is the purpose, the product, the result. Okay? And the yetzerah, the purpose, the product, is evil continually. So the rabbis would say, we have an, a yetzerah. We have an inclination for intentional sin. And this is part of our free will. So, in Genesis, and in all in Torah, you're going to see this probably semester after semester, and especially when we get into Leviticus, and especially when we get into Numbers, we find that there is no solution for the atonement of intentional sin. None. 
Yom Kippur is, when you actually study it, is a sin sacrifice. You'd say, okay, a sin sacrifice, intentional sin. Uh, and Yom Kippur, when you read it, based upon the activities of the high priest, those activities supposedly take all the sins of Israel away. But now you have to understand the words. The word there is unintentional sin. And matter of fact, there are no Hebrews in town. They don't even have to be there for Yom Kippur. They're at home. They don't have to confess their sins. They don't have to do anything. It's only the high priest. So it's very interesting. And when you read Leviticus 4, Leviticus 4 talks about the sin offering. Leviticus 4 is all the details of the sin offering. And in Leviticus 4, and we'll get there someday, it is for unintentional sin only. An oops. Missing the mark. Christians say sin is missing the mark. No, it's not. Biblically, missing the mark is unintentional sin. Actually breaking Torah, but you didn't realize it, or you made a mistake, or you forgot. It's an oops. Okay, it's missing the mark. Intentional sin is not missing the mark. You knew exactly what you were doing. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah, I just heard Bruce's comment is that you're shooting at the wrong target, and you're aiming, and you hit it. Okay? Uh, when it's unintentional sin, you're aiming, at the, uh, you're aiming to do good, okay? But for some reason, the wind blew and your arrow missed the mark, okay? And it, it was an accident. So, when we looked at this, a conclusion for we as Christians, we say we're trapped. However, we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is Jesus came so that our sin, our intentional sin, can actually be atoned for. We still have free will, and we still sin intentionally. But something happened because God came now to actually take care of that. So it's only the blood of the Lamb. Now, again, still that does not talk about is Jesus in the flood? Is Jesus in the flood story? Let me share with you this first of all. Noah, his name in Hebrew is Noah. And for those of you, I always will give the Strong's uh, number. H5146. And when you study the word Noah, you want to understand what it means. It comes from its own root, which means one who gives rest or one who gives comfort. Let me do this. I'm going to go into the Fox translation and let me read the actual verse where Noah is named. And this is in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. I'll go to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 82 years and 100 years, he begot a son. And he called his name Noach, saying, Zay, Yana Amenu, may this one comfort our sorrow from our toil, from the pains of our hands coming from the soil which Yahweh has damned. So, in here, we find that he is named appropriately. He is going to be the comforter. He's the one that's going to give them rest in Genesis 5.29. Now, let's go to John 14.16. John 14.16. So in John 14.16, as I bring it up here on my laptop, we read this. Jesus says to his disciples, this is the Last Supper, by the way, okay? This is at the Last Supper. I believe only 11 are left. I think Judas left by this time. But uh, Jesus says this, and I shall ask the Father, 
Now listen to the wording. The wording is, is very interesting. And he shall give you another helper, another comforter to stay and be with you forever. So that's, I just read that from Scriptures 1998. In the New American Standard, it says, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, another comforter, that he may be with you forever. Well, wait a minute. Another comforter? So if Jesus is leaving and Jesus promises that there's going to be another comforter given, who's Jesus? The implication? He's the comforter. He's the first comforter. He's the first one to give them shalom, to give them rest. He says, I'm leaving. I'll give you another. So Jesus is the first comforter. Now, this is amazing. Jesus implies that. And in rabbinic Judaism, when you actually take a look, I have a book by Raphael Pate, and I'm going to actually use it as a source tonight right here. It's called the Messiah Text. It's all the collection of all the Jewish literature that have anything to do with the Messiah, whether it be biblical text or uh, non-biblical text. And so all the things that they put together with regards to the Messiah, and, he, and uh, Raphael Pate shows that Lamentations, I'll just give you the verse right now, Lamentations 1, verse 11, talks about a comforter. However, the word there is Menachem. Now, you've heard of a, uh, a Jewish leader called Menachem Begin, okay? In other words, his name is the comforter. Comforter Bacon, okay? Begin. Now, what the rabbi said is the Messiah, another name for the Messiah is Menachem. And they get it from Lamentations chapter 1, verse 11. The Messiah is going to be a comforter. Jesus, in John 14, 6, implies that he is the comforter. He is saying, I am the Messiah. So what's fascinating is, here, Jesus is talking about being the comforter, but Noah is the comforter. Two different words now. We have Noah and Menachem. Now, when you actually study the Hebrew, these, kind, these two words kind of intertwine with each other and are related um, somewhat to their roots. Now, with Yeshua the Comforter, He brings a new start. You'll remember this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're new creatures in Christ. You're new creatures in Messiah. All the old things are done away and everything is brand new. We're new, okay? Now, what I find interesting is this. We have a Comforter. Noah. God chooses him to start something new. He wants to start all over. Jesus is the comforter, the Menachem. Jesus came to create something new, new men and new women because of the blood of Messiah. This is really interesting in terms of the parallels here. So for Noah, as the comforter, there's still no way out. Man still has the Yetzirah. And matter of fact, we can read the rest of the story, correct? You can start with Noah and you can read the rest of the Old Testament and say, yep, they continued to sin and there was no solution. But with Yeshua, finally, there's a new creation, there's a new man and a new woman, and the way to the Father is finally open. So as Noah, Jesus is the comforter. He's our blessed hope.
very interesting connections in terms of the wording. And you begin to wonder if indeed those early believers, and I'm talking early believers, I'm talking about before 100 AD, before there was even thoughts of a New Testament. I'm talking about mostly Messianic believers. And all they had was the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And they actually would say definitely, Jesus is like Noah, but he is the one that completes the process. So I found that really interesting. So is Jesus in the flood? Yep, quite definitely. Noah is like a picture of the coming one who will be the final comforter, the one blessed hope who will actually take care of this yetzerah, that intentional sin that we have. So I wanted to share that with you. Now, back from last week, one of the things that we ask ourselves, so, was there a flood? Well, when we looked at the Bible, when we take a look at the ancient Near East cultures, and we took a look at cultures in Chile, in China, we took a look at cultures in uh, Indians, the Algonquin Indians, we would say it seems that there was a flood, quite definitely. However, was it local or was it universal? And the reason why I bring this up is this. There is no proof scientifically at all for a universal flood. None. There are theories, there are opinions, there are ideas. Somebody mentioned to me about the gap between the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic. And it seems as if there was a great rushing water that went through there. Well, that's possible. But does that prove a universal flood? Absolutely not. Okay. But there seems to be, based upon cultures worldwide, that indeed something happened. But is it local or was it universal? Let's take a look at this. Now, when you take a look at Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 7 has some very interesting statements. And the one thing that I want you to focus in, I'm going to give you these verses, I'll read a few of them, is we need to get into the Hebrew. As I mentioned, I want to pay attention to the Hebrew, not the English. When we actually take a look at the Hebrew, we begin to get a fuller appreciation of what the Bible is actually saying. So, in Genesis chapter 7, reading from the Fox's translation, Yahweh said to Noah, Come, you, come, you and all your household, into the ark. For, for you I have seen as righteous before me in this generation. From all pure animals you are to take seven, and seven each, a male and, a, and his mate. And from all the animals that are not pure, two each, a male and his mate. And also from the fowl of the heavens, seven and seven each, male and female. Now here it is. To keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. Okay? The word there is eretz. That's the Hebrew word for earth. That, or that's the Hebrew word here that has been translated to earth. Let me do another one. Verse 4. For in yet seven days I will make it rain upon the earth, eretz, Okay. for 40 days and 40 nights and will blot out all existing things that I have made from the face of the... It doesn't say that. It's a soil. The Hebrew word there, eretz. 
all of a sudden we begin to see, and this is what Fox is trying to do, he's trying to show you the conceptual meaning of Eretz. Uh, let me read another one, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the deluge occurred, water upon the earth. No, it's water upon the Eretz. Now, let me just give you the whole verses. We don't have to read all of them. So it was Genesis 7, 3, 7, 4, 7, 6, 10, 12, 14, 17 through 19, 21, 23, and 24. So in here, when you read that, if you're the problem is Eretz. So let me help you with understand what Eretz means. Eretz means earth, land, continent, country, a piece of land, a piece of earth, or your garden. It does not mean world. It can, but it's never used that way. Let me give you an example in Deuteronomy 34. In Deuteronomy 34, I want to show you how Eretz is used. Eretz is used here not for the globe, not for earth, but for a designated territory of a certain people. So, Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. So Moshe went up for the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo at the top of Pisgah Range that faces Jericho. And Yahweh let him see all the land... Gilead as far as Dan. The word there is Eretz. We continue on. And all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. The land, the Eretz. In other words, the territory that he's going to be giving to Manasseh and uh, Ephraim. And the land of Yehuda, The land of Judah. The territory. And you can read more about that in Deuteronomy 34. I'm going to go to the end of the chapter. I'm in verse 11. I'll, uh, matter of fact, I'll start in verse 10. But there arose no further prophet in Israel like Moshe, whom Yahweh knew face to face, in all the signs and portents, that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt, the edits of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of the servants and to all his edits. Land meaning implying the land that he gave his people. So with regards to this, the Hebrew word for the world, the globe, okay, is not Eretz. Never is used that way. The word for the globe, for the world, is Taval. The Strong's number is H8398 for Taval. And you can see that Taval is used for the world or the globe. Now, the point being is here, you guys, when you're reading Genesis chapter 7 in English, you cannot use the English, you have got to use the Hebrew. Because the Hebrew word doesn't mean the universal globe earth. It means Eretz. It could be a piece of land, a continent, or an area, or just a piece of mud in your hand is Eretz. So God is saying, we're using the word Eretz, is it universal? Is it localized? We can't, we can't make a distinction. You cannot decide in Genesis chapter 7, whether it's a universal flood or a localized flood based upon the word Eretz. Because Eretz has this meaning of a country, a land, a territory, etc. Who are the only eyewitnesses to the flood? Noah, his wife, 
his three sons and his three daughters. Right? That's it. So how did the Algonquin Indians perhaps get a tradition in their own culture that there was a flood? How did the, in the ancient Near East culture, the Epic of Gilgamesh come up? Well, it seems pretty clear. The three sons, obviously, of Noah, Shem, Japheth, and Ham, okay, these three supposedly are the source of all nations. They knew the story. So the story keeps on going down, generation after generation after generation, and with regards to it changing generation after generation, we should not be in any way surprised that the story changes. It changes because of the culture. One of the things that you're aware of is shortly after this, in terms of Noah, his three sons, their three, uh, his, and their three wives and his wife, shortly after we begin to see the earth and we begin to see people start turning to other gods within a short period of time. And so are they going to accommodate the story according to their own worldview? Okay. We did that with the Egyptians last time. The Egyptians did it. The Egyptians said that indeed, and it was the gods. It was a bunch of gods revolting against a bunch of gods. So the gods were going to have a flood to kill the gods. So who survived? The gods, not men. It was, a, it was according to their own culture. So as we finish this lesson... As we finish lesson 19 in our Torah study, we find that the statement that the flood never solved anything seems to make sense. Because we see God's view of us, mankind, before and after the flood. This is in Genesis 6-5, the statement before the flood, and then Genesis 8-21, his statement after the flood, when Noah, his wife, and his three sons and three daughter-in-laws were standing there. And God basically says the intention of man's heart is to sin continually. Nothing changed because of the flood. But it seems to be showing us, or God seems to be showing us, the only way to eliminate sin and evil and wickedness is to destroy all of us. Now this is interesting. Because on Yom Kippurim, the Day of Atonements, we read about the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is not a sacrifice. It, says it's, it doesn't even say anything about a sacrifice. It just says there's a scapegoat. Remember, there were a pair of goats. One was picked as a sin offering, which is only for mistakes, for unintentional sin. An oops. The scapegoat, though, has all the rest of the sins of Israel put upon it. And it's not a sacrifice. It's taken out, and it's destroyed. Again, destruction. This, this reminds me of the flood. I, I find this interesting. And this scapegoat was never a means of a way 
for sin to be taken away. We did that at the beginning of the, the study. We talked about Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Maimonides both agree that there's no sacrifice, nothing in the Torah that takes away intentional sin, sin done on purpose. We agree as well. We read about Paul's statement in Acts 13, 38 through 39, and also in Hebrews. There is no sacrifice in the Old Testament, in the Torah, that takes away sin. The answer is Jesus. The answer is in the blood of the Lamb of God. For all of our sin was put upon him. And like the scapegoat, he was taken outside the city and destroyed. Where is Jesus in the Torah? How does it testify of him? Wow. We see it in the flood story. We see it in Yom Kippurim. And now, obviously, it results in the Lamb of God being destroyed in the crucifixion. So that we can live with him forever. In Lesson 20, we will continue our study and our commentary. And one of the things that we realize is when you study history and real archaeology across the world, there are many, many flood stories from many different cultures, whether it's North American um, Native Americans or whether it's in South America, or whether it's in the, 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 the islands of the Pacific, there are many flood stories. And they're all different because it's based upon culture. Where do all these stories come from? And on top of that, why are they so different from each other? Just as a quick example, you could take a look at the flood stories of ancient Egypt. They have a flood story. And obviously, ancient Babylon. Their flood stories are different, but their flood stories, where do they come from? What's their source? So we'll be taking a look at that in Lesson 20. And I look forward to being with you again at that time. So indeed, may the Lord be gracious to us and bless us. And may he cover us with his shalom. See you then.